0: Welcome to Realty Talk, the show that brings together the country's most authoritative and respected property experts. Follow us on all the socials and subscribe for updates and exclusive offers. Realty Talk is powered by realty.com.au, connecting buyers, sellers and agents differently.
1: Hello and welcome to the show, which is hosted once again by Bushy Martin from Know How Property Finance and of course his very popular podcast, Get Invested. This week, Bushy's guests include Stuart Weems, Eliza Owen, and Simon Presley. Bushy's last word, or as he refers to it, his bush bite, we might have to actually change the name, he questions if converting from long-term to short-term rental investment is such a good idea, if it's short-sighted. And we'd love to get your feedback on that as well as anything else in the show, and you can do that in the comments section under today's show. Well, just when you thought the threat of changes to negative gearing were over, done and dusted, when Labor lost the last federal election, here it is under pressure again. With 60% of Australia's 2.2 million property investors being negatively geared, I would have thought that the ALP might just have learned a lesson. But that's politics, I guess. More on that later. Simon Presley makes a return this week, and he brings some of those very enlightening graphics with him. This time, it's to demonstrate that despite growth of 5.5% in property prices in the last three months, Melbourne's fundamentals are still somewhat quite fragile. But first up today, CoreLogic's Eliza Owen tells Bushy that Australia's housing boom is rolling on with national home values lifting another 2.2% in May. The improvement was almost universal, being recorded in 97% of subregions across the nation. Eliza will list the reasons driving the continued improvement and its likelihood to continue. Now, I know you're going to want to hear about that and all the other topics that we cover in today's show. So let's get started.
2: Welcome. Now, housing markets around Australia continued to surge in May with CoreLogic's Home Value Index up another 2.2% over the month, resulting in a 7% rise across the country over the last quarter. And of the 334 regions analysed, 97% have seen value increases over the last quarter, which is really rare. And one of those occasions where we're actually seeing the rising tide raise all ships. So to discuss the details and what's behind this, and the continued growth that we're seeing, we're joined by leading property market analyst and the head of research at CoreLogic, Eliza Owen. Welcome back to the show, Eliza.
3: Thanks for having me.
2: Eliza, and Why are we seeing such a strong upswing in values across all areas and all property types at the moment, do you think?
3: So I think that there are some really impactful broad factors that have created demand across a a wide array of different segments in Australian housing. And that is largely to do with low interest rates. Um, Any direction in the movement of interest rates generally has an inverse relationship with property values. So with interest rates sitting at record lows, um, mortgage rates coming down to uh, record lows, um, that's created a a swift increase in uh, property prices. But I think more structurally at the moment as well, We've seen an increase in um, other types of assets and products and commodity values is a big one. Yep. So as well as a housing market upswing, we've got a, a uplift in production and mining as well. And that's sort of supporting those more resource markets um, and even manufacturing markets that may have typically performed counter to some of the larger property markets in in Sydney and Melbourne in the past as well. So uh, as you mentioned, we saw of the SA3 sub markets that we analyze, 97% um, have seen an increase in value in the past three months. So that leaves about 11 markets across the entire country that didn't see an increase and even among those you know they tend to be further afield regional markets that are maybe more associated with um, gas markets as opposed to iron ore which is performing more strongly or they have started to see a monthly increase but in quarterly terms they're sort of lagging behind the rest of the market. Um, so, I mean, within that, there are kind of different dynamics and there are areas that are doing better than others, but uh, it's definitely good for sellers in many parts of the country right now.
2: No question. So just to sort of dig in a little bit, uh, how has value growth varied across locations, types and, and price points as you've seen it?
3: Well, it's been really interesting. So if we look at the change in values over the past year, say, um, we could see that regional markets have really outperformed the capital cities. So um, home values across regional Australia were up uh, 15% over the year compared to a 9% increase in the regional markets. Once we get to the uh, monthly movements, though, that performance gap has really shrunk, um, with capital cities actually outperforming uh, the regions uh, by, you know, just. Uh, 10 basis points, not much at all. Yeah. Um, and then across the house and unit market, for example, that's where we're seeing some other major changes. So an uplift of about 13 perhaps, uh, 13% per thirteen in the house segment, um, as opposed to about 3% in the unit segment um, over the year. So both segments still in upswing, but houses well outperforming. Now, in terms of what we've seen in that outperformance among regional Australia, um, detached housing, it comes back largely to the profile of the buyer. If we look at ABS housing finance data, the latest release was April. So that came out last Friday. Um, That showed that the dominant buyer in the market at the moment is still the owner-occupier buyer who's not a first home buyer. So upsizes, downsizes, people who are moving, people who find themselves pretty cashed up because of the increases in property values recently, they can afford to participate, uh, they can afford to get into the detached housing style, and of course through COVID we've seen some preferences and, and trends develop in housing where people want a larger home, they want land associated with it because they have to spend more time at home. So the only real flip, I guess, that we've started to see now is that owner-occupier 1st uh, home buyers have started to come out of the market a little bit. Yep. Um, and we're also seeing that affordability constraints and the rise of the investor segment could see a pivot back towards the unit market. Uh, and some of those monthly trends are indicating that people are coming, uh, becoming more bullish about capital cities again.
2: Interesting. Okay. So I was going to ask you about investors. You're, you're starting to see an increase in, in that segment?
3: Yeah. So um, again, the April finance data from the ABS marked this consecutive month of increase in the value of finance lent for investment property purchases. Um, investors have been trending higher proportionally in the market as well. So as of April, they made up about 26% of the value of property that was lent out over the month. Now that's well down from the decade average, which was more like 36%, but they've come off recent lows. So they're coming back. Um, They're still not making up as as dominant a part of the market as um, they have done in previous housing booms and things like that, but they are starting to come back. Um, I guess the other thing with the investor segment is we know it's not the first home buyer who's doing the rent vesting strategy. That's reflected in the ABS data as well. But it could be a buyer who um, is buying a holiday home. Uh, It could be a rise in overseas uh, investors in Australia's property market. Um, Or it could be people looking to, you know, just grow their wealth through through property and taking advantage of, of rising rents in some areas as well.
2: Mm, interesting. Well, I'm going to ask you to get out your crystal ball now, and uh, which is always uh, fun and games, but what's <laughs> your, your read of what's likely to happen with property values moving forward and why?
3: Yeah, so, it, I mean, that's the ultimate question. As soon as the market starts um, doing as, as well as it is, um, when it, when is this going to end? Um, and I, I probably couldn't answer when exactly it's going to end. At the moment, I don't see any major headwinds to housing market performance, or at least I didn't before Melbourne went back into um, extended lockdowns. I think the major headwinds for the housing market that could turn uh, the direction of the market are a spike in COVID cases and and subsequent um, extended lockdowns. I think what's happened in Melbourne shows that we're still vulnerable to that without a more comprehensive vaccination policy and a a lack of government support that we saw were introduced in stage two restrictions last year. Um, The other thing we're obviously looking at very closely is the lending space, because a lot of this growth is driven by housing finance. So as I mentioned, mortgage rates are still at record lows. Average lending rates continued to fall through April, even though we're starting to get this speculation that interest rates are going to shoot up and <laughs> um, it's going to be disaster for people's finances. That's probably going to happen very gradually. We are starting to see a bit of of an increase in the longer term fixed rates as banks prepare for higher funding costs in the long term. Um, But ultimately, our regulators, our institutions, they understand um, what's at stake in terms of a change in market conditions. And any change to lending conditions is going to happen very gradually, very carefully, uh, communicated very carefully. Um, I think we're actually already seeing soft, enforcement of tighter lending conditions. Um, You know, we could see APRA's um, uh, deputy um, governor gave an address to the mutual banking sector a few months ago and was saying, hey, your LVRs are looking a bit high, you might wanna watch that. (laughs) So, you know, even things like that where it might not be a policy like we saw in 2017 where, bam, there's a a limitation on interest-only loans. This could be a gradual, softly communicated thing to, to try and gradually um, take the foot off the accelerator in the housing market. Um, that, that would be my prediction for the nature of the downturn if institutions can control it, right? There's always economic shocks that, that can't be controlled as well. Yeah, of course.
2: And I think you're right. I think the, the just the public signalling yeah. of uh, raising those issues uh, has as much impact as actually uh, totally. introducing yeah. <laughs> actual macroprudential measures, which, which is likely to happen if things continue to get out of control. So no, always very interesting. Uh, appreciate those insights, uh, Eliza, and, and thanks for your time on the show today.
3: No worries at all. Thanks again and take care.
2: Thanks, Eliza. Well, it's obvious that the perfect storm is going to continue for, for some period and uh, enjoy it while it's there i've always been on belief that the best time to buy a property is every time you can so uh, make take advantage of that and some really good thought today so stay with us because you're here on realty talk
1: Call BMT on 1300 728 726 today for an obligation free quote.
2: Welcome. Well, despite being the hardest hit area by COVID, Melbourne has seen 5.5% growth in property values over the last three months. But how fragile are Melbourne's fundamentals? Well, to discuss this, I'm joined by renowned industry contrarian Simon Presley of Propertyology. So, welcome back to the show, Simon.
4: Thank you, Bushy. Contrarian, yes, I get the, the adjective gets used a lot with
2: my name. Well, you're one of those that's not scared to say it how it is, and you're often uh, way ahead of the pack in terms of predictions that that nine times out of ten turned out to be correct rather than the other, mate. So, uh, always loving having on the show, mate, but... Uh, so jumping straight into the subject then, uh, you know, we've seen property prices in Melbourne rising strongly and we're seeing very strong auction results. And, and until the recent lockdowns in Melbourne, we were seeing high uh, traffic at the opens. So why are you concerned about Melbourne moving forward?
4: Yeah, I think always with property, uh, unlike shares, Bushy, people need to be uh, just as much focused on the the next few years ahead as they are on the in the moment, because we don't buy a property for a day. We can certainly buy shares for a day, but uh, that's not how one transacts in property. So, you know, people only need to go back to uh, early 2017. And the same really high auction clearance rates and long queues at open homes that we see today is what what they saw in early 2017. But little did those people know they're only a few months away from the start of a downturn. So um, this is where we need to understand fundamentals and and analyse them objectively. And when we've done that for Melbourne, uh, here's a few numbers that are not by any means pretty. Overseas migration on the demand side of property, Melbourne typically gets about 80,000 people per year, a net figure, adding to their population. Um, In the last six months, they have lost 20,000 people. So a net loss of 20,000 six months compared to normally a gain of 80,000 in 12 months. Internal migration, these are the existing residents of Melbourne who may move from one location to another. Normally Melbourne gains about 2,000 people per year. Last year, Melbourne lost 26,000 people per year. So technically Melbourne's population declined in the 2020 calendar year. Um, Construction, Melbourne has about 45 to 50,000 new dwellings already in the construction pipeline. And the Victorian state government as part of its economic recovery plan is cranking that up. Resale supply, the number of properties listed for sale today, uh, yes, it's con- the, the low volume of supply is contributing to the high results seeing at the coalface today, but that number of properties listed for sale is growing pretty significantly and at a faster rate than any other location in Australia. Vacancy rates, which is rental supply. Melbourne today has the highest vacancy rates in all of Australia and the highest in its 200 year history. There are now 25,000 properties empty Rental properties empty in Melbourne, just a year ago, that was 11,000. Significant extra rental supply. Rents, it's not just the CBD rents that have declined by in excess of $100 per week. Suburban houses, particularly in the inner east and the northwest of Melbourne, have declined by about $2,000 per annum over the last 12 months. So there's some household budgets there. There's a landlord behind those properties, that's had a big, big hit to its, uh, to its income. Um, and then we've also got uh, new rental legislation, which is certainly not gonna encourage more investors to participate in real estate. If anything, it's gonna discourage them. So none of these things are, um, are good. Um, and then there's some concerns we've got about Melbourne's economy as well going forward.
2: Well, let's jump straight into that uh, and get you to talk us through how you are seeing Melbourne's economy and and how this is relevant to uh, property markets.
4: Yeah, so if we bring up a, a graphic here, Bushy, uh, uh, look at this graphic called Melbourne's fundamentals, and you can see the green line there. We've got uh, we've got eight different metrics here. The green line is showing. Uh, Melbourne and the blue, blue line is showing uh, its comparison to other parts of Australia. And none of those trends are good. Now we're a, a local economy. So in this case, Melbourne's economy, more than anything else, a local economy always has the biggest influence on a property market because at the end of the day, it's economic conditions which create jobs or causes job loss or wage growth or wage decline or confidence before anyone buys a property. We don't think of it this way, but we actually buy the debt and no one willingly buys debt without confidence. There's quite a bit of pent up demand in Melbourne at the moment, which is reflected at the uh, uh, open homes and auctions. Um, But once they purchase that property, they're gone. Where's the next layer of people coming through? That's gonna come from their confidence or lack thereof in Melbourne's economy. Now, Melbourne is a global city, Um, always uh, relies heavily and benefits a lot from international business. Tourism, uh, for example, Melbourne typically gets about 11 million visitors per year from people coming from overseas, and that generates about $10 billion per annum to Melbourne's economy. It hasn't got that for the last 12 months. Who knows how long it will be before it will return to that. Um, International students, Melbourne usually has about 200,000 people living in Melbourne to study at the universities, and they've come from other parts of the country. It doesn't have that. We don't know when that's going uh, to return. Um, CBD office vacancies. There's 60% of Melbourne CBD offices that are empty. That's miles more than any other location in Australia. Now, how that affects property markets, if people are, it's, it's not only the landlords of those offices that aren't getting a rental income, it's the people who are normally there Monday to Friday, 7 a.m. to 6 p.m. or whatever it is, If they're not there, they're not going out, getting coffee, buying suits and dresses and supporting all those local businesses. So um, we shouldn't underestimate how important that is to Melbourne's economy. It's retail trade. It is the weakest, these are official ABS um, figures. They've got the weakest retail trade in all of Australia. Job advertisements are the lowest uh, change in volume in all of Australia over the last 18 months. Residents continue to relocate away from Melbourne. They're not moving into Melbourne. And sadly, it's in lockdown again. Uh, those who watch the news would have seen the droves of cars heading out of Melbourne. So we've got some concern for psychological um, impacts of, uh, of the lockdown on, on Melbourne, how that will not only affect the economy, um, but also demand for housing, whether it's to rent or buy. And the last, but probably most important bit is the enormous amount of debt that the Victorian state government have taken on. Now, every government in the world, bar none, has taken on a lot of debt to respond to COVID and that's mostly good. But Melbourne has taken on more debt than any other state in Australia by a country mile. And how that affects property markets is going forward, its ability to raise funds for future infrastructure projects or to support different parts of its industry We only need to look at Queensland to see the adverse impact of a state government having too much debt. Queensland state economy, my home state, Bushy, we have had the highest debt in Australia for many, many years now, for about 15 years. Queensland's economy has been one of the weakest economies for that decade. Queensland's property markets have been significantly underwhelming because of that. So big picture stuff, but people need to be aware of it
2: yeah well, uh, some some really good indicators there. What general advice then would you uh, give to us about Melbourne's property market moving forward?
4: Yeah, um, I guess it depends on uh, on where you sit and which, which demographic you're in. Um, I don't want, there's no reason to be panicking. I'm not, I'm not forecasting a, a market crash. I'm not saying that people should, you know, wholesale their properties, but you need to be aware that what your the barbecue discussions the lunchroom discussions is got nothing to do with the fundamentals we've been talking about there. Um, I, I have, I would not rule out the possibility of Melbourne property prices declining at some stage over the next couple of years. Again, not a crash. But the boom that is happening at the moment is widespread, and I do not see that continuing in Melbourne. If you're the owner of an apartment, I would be concerned about that. Um, Nothing to do with COVID. We've already got examples of places like Perth and Brisbane, where apartments have not seen any growth at all for at least 10 years. Yeah. That's without the stuff that Melbourne's uh, had to to deal with with the coronavirus. So yeah. Anyone who's thinking that uh, that could not happen to an apartment in Melbourne, um, I'd suggest that that's not wise thinking. And you're gonna have problems um, with your rental income if you are an investor in a Melbourne apartment for quite some time. It could be several years before you see any rental growth. Um, yeah. So you need to factor that into consideration. I think the, uh, the middle ring detached houses will remain solid. I don't think the strong growth that Melbourne's seen in the last six months will continue for much longer. Um, but I think that those values in general um, will hold up. If you're an investor now and always, you need, to, you need to consider yourself borderless. The city that you live in is irrelevant when it's time to invest. You need to consider the fundamentals of every location in Australia. And Melbourne have the weakest fundamentals in this country uh, by a long shot at the moment. Um, and the last piece of, uh, piece of the puzzle are commercial offices and inner city retail. Um, if anyone owns those uh, property assets, um, unfortunately, there's a bit of pain ahead, in, in my
2: view. Yeah, no doubt about it. Mate, some very sobering thoughts there. Thanks, Simon. I really appreciate you coming on the show to, to share that with us.
4: My pleasure. Thanks, Bushy.
2: But, uh, well, it's very clear that you need to dig deeper than the headlines and the stats to really understand what's going on in property. And there's no doubt that uh, Simon and his team at Propertyology are very uniquely positioned to help you with that. Stay with us for more here on Realty Talk.
1: Property depreciation is the natural wear and tear of a building and its assets. Property investors can claim depreciation as a tax deduction each financial year. Depreciation is a non-cash deduction. This means you don't need to spend any money in order to claim it. On average, BMT tax depreciation find residential investors almost $9,000 in first full financial year deductions. Call BMT on 1300 728 726 today for an obligation-free quote.
2: Welcome. Now, if you're a property investor, you'll probably remember the huge sigh of relief that we all had when the Labor Party lost the last federal election, largely on the back of their policy to abolish negative gearing, with over 60% of the 2.2 million landlords in the country currently negatively geared. So you'd think we were safe from seeing negative gearing being under any threat in the future. However, today's guest, Stuart Weems from Pro Solutions is here to warn you that negative gearing may not be here to stay. So welcome back to the show, Stuart.
0: Great to be get with you again, Bushy. Thank you for the invitation
2: yeah, always like like having a chat and you've got some great insights, Stuart. So but sort of getting into the meat of the subject, before we dig into your warnings, can you start with a very quick and brief summary of what negative gearing is and and why so many investors are negatively geared?
0: Yeah, sure. So I mean negative gearing just allows you to offset any rental income losses against other income. Um, And probably best explain with a very, very brief uh, example. So if I earn $100,000 from my job, I will pay about $24,000 in tax. But if I have an investment property uh, and that property's income less expenses is a negative $10,000, then I can offset my $100,000 job income with my $10,000 investment loss and my taxable income then is $90,000. $90,000. And I then pay $20,500 of tax. So my tax bill has gone from twenty four dollars to about $20,500. Uh, so I've saved $4,500 there. That means that the, of the $10,000 that I lost on my investment property, I will receive a refund of $4,500. So my out-of-pocket cost is $5,500. So it allows us it, or it defrays some of the cost of holding on to negatively geared property, that is when the expenses are larger than the income.
2: Yeah, and I guess the, the reason for going down the negatively you geared know, road is you're betting on the fact that the capital growth is going to more than compensate for the cost of holding it in the meantime.
0: Exactly right. There's no point losing money just for the sake of it. We, we definitely hope that over the long run, the dollar value of the, the growth that I get out of the property will make any losses, any income losses look immaterial.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Now, I want to get into the interesting bit now, but what are the three reasons why you think that negatively gearing might still be at risk?
0: Well, I think the first one is that uh, as as it's been well documented, government debt will exceed probably $1 trillion uh, sooner or later. Uh, Well, that's actually predicted next year. So um, there's two ways that the government's going to be able to not only just service the interest cost of that debt, but ultimately uh, repay it. One way is to grow the economy. If we grow GDP, we, we, as a result, grow tax revenue. And obviously, that's that's a good thing everyone wins, if you like. Another way is to increase taxes or reduce tax deductions. And I think we look at the 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 population, the amount of population that invest in property, it kind of informs us to some degree around, if I'm a a government coming up with some tax policy, how many votes do I have to lose? So about 11% of Australians, uh, adult Australians, invest in property. So as we saw from the ALP's election policy back in 2019, that was widely unpopular. But only 3.3% of the population own two or more properties. Um, and not all of those would be negatively geared, right? Because if I've accumulated a couple or more properties, maybe I've been doing it for some time and the rent's appreciated and I've paid down some debt, et cetera, et cetera. So by limiting negative gearing, as opposed to abolishing it in full, I think is going to be a, a far more palatable uh, policy for the electorate. That is, that I, it's a way of me pay, potentially raising tax dollars Uh, without losing uh, too many votes so that's my first reason bushy Uh, my second reason is um, you know if interest rates remain persistently low it really does hamper uh, the negative gearing benefits of investing in property that is that if i'm investing in property the, the tax savings that i would have got maybe 10 years ago aren't nearly as high as what they are today mainly because my cash flow costs are low because interest rates are so lower, right? So a million-dollar property um, today, you would be lucky it's losing, in terms of income, somewhere between ten dollars and $15,000, whereas 10 years ago, or give or take, uh, you know, the loss would have been somewhere, depending on interest rates, between twenty-five dollars and $50,000, right? It's a massive difference. Yeah. Now, will interest rates increase? That's a million-dollar question, of course, but we only have to look to... Um, economies like japan and see that they've been stuck on zero interest rates for nearly 25 years yep. so we do know particularly when there's a high level of government debt as a result of and more quantitative easing easy and so forth we do know it's difficult for economies to get off uh, low interest rates so if interest rates remain persistently low for the next five to ten years well negatively gearing benefits or tax savings if you like uh, are going to be impaired as a result of that so for the people that are incorrectly invested in property just to save tax or predominantly save tax, unfortunately it might not necessarily help them do so. And of course, Bushy, we all know, the only reason we invest in property is to build wealth. Uh, any tax savings are, um, are really just icy on the cake. Yeah. Uh, and the last one is the stage three tax cuts. So um, in a couple of years time, they're going to flatten the, the, the tax brackets uh, so that anyone earning between forty and $200,000, 40000 and $200,000, uh, will be on a, a 34.5% tax rate. Um, whereas we know anyone earning over 180 is on the highest marginal rate, And between, and it used to be between eighty and one hundred eighty. It was thirty nine percent. Anyway, as the tax rates fall, so do our negative gearing benefits, and so it kind of flattens the curve as a result of that.
2: Yeah, it's a very good summary, and I guess what you're talking about there with the limitations means that it's more likely to impact on the higher income earners, which from a from a voting perspective is gonna be much more palatable to the politicians. So uh, it makes a lot of sense what you're saying there. Uh, Final question then Stuart, what does all this mean to investors do you think?
0: Well, I would caution anyone from um, making decisions to invest in property or any other asset, for that matter, um, on the basis of tax benefits alone. And I guess it's a, it's something that I've always said, and I know other many other commentators do as well. Uh, saving tax alone will not make you independently wealthy. Um, of course, we shouldn't go and pay any more. Uh, then we absolutely need to. Of course, we, we, we should take every avenue to reduce our taxes, um, but avoiding with the sole focus of just avoiding tax isn't necessarily going to help you build wealth. So, you know, I used to get, I don't get that many phone calls like this uh, these days, thankfully, but I used to, in you know, 15 years ago, get phone calls, oh, still, I want to buy an investment property because I paid too much tax last year. Okay, that's a good reason. That's not necessarily a good reason by itself to go on uh, buy an investment property. So, look, I would... Council investors probably to disregard any tax benefits as a result of investing in property, and if they occur and they remain, well, that's all icing on the cake. Um, but if they if they end up getting abolished, at least it doesn't upset your investment strategy. And I just think it's going to be too tempting for a government to fiddle with those negative gearing rules.
2: Yeah, it's very good advice as always, Stuart. Uh, really appreciate your insights today, and thanks for coming on the show.
0: Pleasure's all mine.
2: Great, Stuart. Well, uh, as we've always said here at Realty Talk, uh, you don't invest just to save tax. You need to focus on investment-grade properties with the highest growth and don't rely on negative gearing as part of your strategy to afford the property. That's the the key take-home message I take there. So stay with us for more here on Realty Talk. Welcome. Now, in this week's bushfire, I wanna ask you a question. Is short-term accommodation short-sighted? What do I ask that? Well, according to the latest CoreLogic stats, for, there's been a 46% reduction in the number of properties for long-term rental over the last 12 months. And with the consequent boom in domestic tourism that's happening right around the country, there's also been a correlated big increase in the number of short-term Airbnb style properties that are now currently being converted. Now, if this is you or you're considering doing it, then I want to open your eyes to some of the risks that might be associated with it. And the first of those is around income consistency, because while you know $400 a night Sounds very attractive compared to $400 a week. You may be very disappointed with the level of occupancy rates that you actually achieve, given the amount of competition and how aggressively you need to market that property. Now, I say that because uh, my good wife and I used to own a property management business where we managed uh, 70 very high quality beachside properties in a beautiful coastal location. And of those 70, only two were profitable. Why? Well, unfortunately, uh, in the peak times when those properties earn their highest income, quite often landlords wanted to use them. So Christmas, Easter, school holidays, were generally the times that the landlords wanted to block out. They are also the times when most people want to take advantage of those properties. And what that meant was you'd only get the occasional uh booking and therefore the rental income was a long way short of where expectations were secondly uh, if you're going to do this you need to be very proactive in your advertising and you also need to be extremely responsive in relation to responding to any inquiries so it's the quick or the dare when people are looking they're making a decision if you're not there to do it and you're just doing this part-time as something to do on the side you're probably going to be very sadly disappointed. Also, you need to take account of the massive expectations that people have when they uh, secure an Airbnb property. They're still thinking they're booking a hotel room. And uh, unless your property looks like something out of a resort, then you're likely to incur not only a lot of disappointment, a lot of complaints, a lot of headaches and heartaches, but you'll also incur significantly increased expenses around maintenance, around cleaning of the properties and around general disruption to your life when you have to drop everything to sort something out or to clean a property and have it ready for occupancy at very short notice. So not everything it's cracked up to be. The other thing that you need to take in consideration is a lot of investors we've seen have this assumption that even if they are successful in getting increased income, uh, that that income is going to help them in relation to their future borrowings if they're looking to add properties or to refinance, etc. Now, unfortunately, because of the short-term nature of that income and the inconsistency and unreliability of it, the bank's view is, well, we will discount it and we'll only apply the current long-term market rent and then they generally shade that by 80%. So you're going to be uh, quite disappointed in relation to uh, its impact, even if you are successful at creating a profitable short-term accommodation opportunity. So unless you're going to run it as a business and it becomes a serious second job, and you're gonna put the time, effort and money into it, I would seriously question whether you're going to be better off having a property as a short-term versus having a consistent long-term tenant guaranteeing the income and then making sure that you're not putting yourself at risk financially. That's the food for thought for this week. I'm Bushy Martin. You're watching Realty Talk.
1: Once again, thanks Bushy, some really good advice. Catch more of Bushy at his Get Invested podcast. Well, that's it for another show. A special thanks to Bushy's guests, Eliza Owen, Stuart Weems, and Simon Presley. And a reminder that you can see all of our shows at realty.com.au, along with one of Australia's most extensive range of properties for sale from over 7,000 agencies nationally. Thanks to Realty and also to BMT, Tax Depreciation, for their support. I'm Kevin Turner. We'll see you next time.
0: Miss something in this week's show or want to catch up on past shows? Do it anytime at realty.com.au where we connect buyers, sellers and agents differently.